All right, so I want to start off. So my my vision for these classes, by the way, is is it's going to be pretty informal. I want it to be, if possible, conversational, which means you guys are going to get to actually participate. That means Scott Bowman as well. Yeah. So let's start off with, with just an open question. There's no wrong answers. Why do you guys think the Trinity is important? Why, why are we having this class? What's, what's it all about? Ben thinks it's important to understand the nature of God. Wow, getting getting big picture on us, Ben. Yes, Constance. Because God is the person we're supposed to obey and love, therefore it you know, it follows that we would want to know as much about him as possible. Yeah, it's a great answer. What else? So to deepen our understanding about God, we're going to learn about the Trinity. Good. Um, here's a really basic... Oh, Don. That is a great answer. Yeah. So so for apologetic purposes, it's important to know about the doctrine of the Trinity because we do profess it. It's actually in the shorter and longer catechism, Westminster, Westminster catechisms. I'm just going to read, this is no later than question five, does the Westminster catechism uh, confront the, the idea of the Trinity? Question five says, uh, by the way, this is written for children, right? Are there more gods than one? And the answer is, there is but one only, the living and true God. Question six goes on to say, how many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So we're going to start to unpack some of this terminology today, especially the terminology of persons and substance or essence. Um, But before we do that, I want to start with just a, a passage from Scripture that will hopefully structure our conversation today. And this is the passage from Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 3. So Jesus confronts the Samaritan woman. They talk about living water. They have this exchange. He prophesies about her husbands. And then she says this, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the dual nature of proper worship, according to Jesus, you know, authentic worship, is that it must be done in spirit and in truth. The Trinity is a great doctrine to, to tackle that idea with because, truth be told, most of us don't know the whole truth of the Trinity, right? But God calls us to worship him not only in the spirit of the Trinity, which our whole liturgy is actually structured around the Trinity. We only read uh, about one-third of the Nicene Creed today, but even that one-third is structured in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you read the whole Nicene Creed, it's structured similarly. It begins with the Father, there's a paragraph on the Son, and the last paragraph is on the Holy Spirit. So our liturgy, our whole, the way we worship already does emphasize the Trinity, but we're going to pr- practice the other part of this um, 
uh, binary here, the, the truth part today. So we're going to learn about the Trinity. So I want to cover two items and then hand it over to Hannah to talk about specifically the Holy Spirit. I want to do an historical overview, and this is going to be um, a lot of information. Um, so hold your questions to maybe the end today. Um, and if you have further questions, I'd love to talk about this stuff with you one-on-one. Send me an email, send Brian or Steve emails. Um, it's really rich stuff, but we only have time to do a bit of it today. And then secondly, I want to talk about uh, how we talk about the Trinity, how we're supposed to talk about the Trinity according to some of the councils that we're going to cover in the historical overview. So first, historical overview and then Trinitarian grammar. So you should have two handouts, right? We're going to tackle the timeline one first. So grab that one. Keep it in front of you. If you don't have one, try to share with someone who does. I might not have made enough copies. It's a great turnout today. Okay. Hannah doesn't have one. All right. So timeline. First, uh, from about 50 to 175, CE just stands for Common Era, otherwise known as AD. This is when the New Testament documents that we have compiled and canonized in our Bibles today were written and edited and, you know, bound together in scrolls. Okay. So the first thing to note about the New Testament when talking about the Trinity is that it actually doesn't contain the word Trinity. Does anybody know that? The Holy Bible does not say the word Trinity. Ben, you, you knew that? Awesome. Points for Ben. So it, although it contains no explicit Trinitarian doctrine, there are a lot of references to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together and as one divine being. Okay. So I've listed a few of them here. Uh, usually they occur, like, for example, in the Gospels, they occur often uh, describing all three persons of the, of the Trinity acting together in some divine action or operation, okay? And then in the letters, such as the letters of Paul or Peter, um, they often occur as an exhortation or a declaration or in a prayer, some kind of liturgical formula, right? Uh, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, etc., Okay, so these references, along with how Jesus is presented in the New Testament and how the Logos, or Spirit, is talked about in the Old Testament, become the foundations for all the Trinitarian theology that develops in the first uh, four centuries of Christian history. Okay, So the, the first major uh, event that led the church to think more carefully and critically about what about the doctrine of the Trinity, about how these these three persons fit together into one being, was called the Arian Controversy. So this happens between 318 and 321. A presbyter named Arius began teaching that there was a time when the Son was not. There actually was a time before the Son existed and then the Son came into existence. So in other words, the Son is a creature or a creation just like you and me, just like humans, just like rocks and bunny rabbits and all the rest right? Well, this enraged his bishop, the bishop uh, of Alexandria, Alexander, and he excommunicated him, okay? Well, then Arius went and found a bunch of similar-minded people and kind of led a, led a theological protest or revolt, as it were. And this led to a bunch of councils, a bunch of uh, church-wide ecumenical councils that began to delineate exactly what the church was to believe and profess about this doctrine. 
Okay, so they started writing these decrees that became what we now think of as the creeds, right? The Nicene Creed was from this first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325. So these are, the, these are the ways that the church delineated what it really thought, what it really believed about the Trinity. And this became orthodoxy, okay? So on the Arian controversy paragraph, I just want to note the last few sentences there. The dispute threatened to split the church and a series of councils ensued variously excommunicating and vindicating Arius and his defenders or their opponents. Each side successively tried to win the favor of then-current emperor, trying to manipulate imperial power to crush its opposition. This is sort of the lesser understood and lesser known um, aspect to early Christian history. Orthodoxy emerged actually through a series of conversations, debates, theological debates, by leading theologians and bishops and clergymen, but also through political conflict, right? I mean, as when Constantine sort of wed the church to imperial power, the church got caught up in politics in a way that it hadn't been caught up beforehand, before that, right? So what's, and we can talk more about this later if you want. I don't want to spend too, too much time doing it. But it's just to say that the doctrines such as the Trinity did not just drop out of the sky, Okay, they actually emerged from an ongoing debate and conversation among clergymen, uh, parishioners, bishops, even politicians, people like the emperors, Constantine, right? So in other words, it arose from careful reflection on scripture, the worship and liturgy of the church itself, all of which was guided by, we believe, God's spirit in these first four centuries of Christian history, okay? So in other words, it didn't drop out of the sky, but it was a careful and reflective process led by the Holy Spirit. So let's look uh, real quickly at the brief at the uh, first ecumenical council of Nicaea. The important thing to know about that is just that the the council decreed the Father and the Son were in the Greek homoousios. That just means of the same substance as each other. This is a direct denial of Arianism. Okay, Arius believed that they were not the same substance, that the, the son was a creature and the father was the creator. There was a sort of untransversable divide between them. And the first ecumenical council at Nicaea rejected that, said, no, 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 they're of the same substance. And then over the next 50 or 60 years, people who were involved in Nicaea, bishops and clergymen and theologians, began to expand and elaborate on this original kernel of doctrine here. So, the, the most important people here are the Cappadocian fathers, and I've delineated a few of them, the three most important, the two Gregories and St. Basil. So they're responsible for establishing the consistent terminology of the Trinity. Specifically, they use the word hypostasis or person, right? We heard that in the Shorter Catechism. They use person to talk about what there are three of in the Trinity. Thanks, Hannah. And there are, there's only one, usia, or substance. Okay, so that's why it's homoousios is, a, is an important term because it's saying that the Father and the Son are actually of the same substance. Now, the next council, the Council of Constantinople, was, was about to say that about the Spirit and the other two, the Spirit and the Father and the Son. But there were some anti-Spirit factions in that council and they weren't able to really get that terminology in the de- decree. But it became more and more recognized as orthodoxy as theologians sort of reflected on scripture and disputed with, with each other. 
and prayed about it. Uh, the term homoousios of the same substance began more and more to be applied to the Holy Spirit as to the Son and to the Father. Okay? So this is sort of the emergence of what we call the terminology of the Trinity, the basic grammar of the Trinity, three persons in one substance or essence. And then in the, in the beginning of the 5th century, St. Augustine, who's heard of St. Augustine? Pretty important dude. Yeah, for all Christians everywhere, especially those who consider themselves Orthodox. Augustine publishes his work, De Trinitate, or On the Trinity, in 417. Now, this was to set the groundwork, set the course, really, for most future Trinitarian theology, okay? Well into the Middle Ages, where people just quoting and re-quoting and re-quoting St. Augustine on what the Trinity looks like and how to visualize it. The most famous model that Augustine gave for understanding the Trinity, and I'll, I'll leave the historical overview here, is that the Father we can imagine as the lover in a pair, lover-beloved. The Son is the beloved, who the Son calls himself the beloved in, in John's Gospel most, most famously. And then the, the Spirit is the lover's love for that object. So according to Augustine, the love between two people, two beings, actually overflows into a third thing, a life of its own. This is most visibly seen in children, right? The fruits of two people's love for each other often overflows in offspring, right? So Augustine said, hey, this is really similar to the way that the Trinity works, the way the love is structured between the Trinity. Now, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit is the, the child of the Father and the Son's you know, sexual union, that he, he would say, no, 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 that's not how it works. But it gives us a metaphor or an idea to conceive this inconceivable, really, uh, model of the Trinity. All right. So leaving the historical overview real quick into the next handout before I hand it over to Hannah. The Athanasian Creed is a 6th century document that further articulates what we ought to believe about the Trinity. And I just want to draw your attention to a few paragraphs here. So the first is, the, is the, the last sentence in the first paragraph. I'll just read it out. It says, We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the divine being. So the idea here, and it, it just expands on this in the, the, the following paragraphs, is that unity and diversity are both ultimate within God's being. So God is neither just a unity, just a one thing, nor is God just a threeness, just a three thing, okay? We'll see that on week three of this class, I want to bring us back full circle to this idea and talk about how our culture has a really hard time choosing between unity and diversity. You have usually on the right, people emphasize unity, absolute truth, everyone must believe this one thing. And on the left, we have diversity, oh, anything goes, right? Pluralism, diversity for its own sake. Don't tell me one thing is right. Well, the Trinity is a great resource for operating in our contemporary culture because it shows us that both are actually true and both can be harmonized in one model of, of divinity, right? Called the Trinity. That's what the Trinity accomplishes for us, or it's one of the things it accomplishes. So, I want to leave us there. This is a really brief, I understand, and, and sort of slipshod introduction to 
how the Trinity came to be as a doctrine, and then the fundamental grammar, the way that we talk about the Trinity. We're going to come back to a lot of these themes on week three, and and we'll come back to them as we unpack the Father and the Son over the next two weeks. But right now, I want to give Hannah a chance to talk more practically about how we worship God as Spirit, as a community. Okay, so... Just really quickly, I wanted to introduce myself because I recognize that I'm a new face to in town and I'm up here teaching you and a lot of you actually don't know me. So you're like, why should I listen to you? I never met you before, but my name is Hannah Adams. I originally am from Washington, D.C. I grew up there my whole entire life. Um, And then when I was 23, I moved over here to Portland, Oregon, and I've lived here for the last six years. So I'm 29 now. And for the last six years, I've been enrolled at Multnomah Biblical Seminary getting my Master of Divinity. So the hope is to eventually become a... uh, Old Testament theology professor or something along those lines. I'd study Hebrew and I love that. And so that's something that I'm really passionate about. So I was really excited when Scott asked me to come and share some of the things that I've learned. Um, but I just wanted to give you guys a little bit of who I am so that you know and you can feel comfortable talking to me about these issues. I love to talk about them. Um, but another fun fact that I wanted to share with you about me is that I actually grew up Presbyterian. So I grew up memorizing the Shorter Westminster Catechism and I knew all of those things. Um, and then kind of when I went to college, I got into this rebellious stage and I was like, I'm going to go to a Pentecostal church, mom, take that. And I was like, uh, five point Calvinism, I don't care. And I like ran off <laughs> and I decided I wanted to like know all about Pentecostalism and what is this thing? Um, other little tiny snippet of my backstory, I grew up in a broken family, so my dad was actually abusive, and he was an elder in our church, so that was really hard, and I got these like really weird dualistic messages about faith and religion and God and who is he and all of that stuff, so when I moved over here, I was super zealous to kind of rekindle my relationship with God and kind of work through some of the anger and things that I had, but I know that one of the first things I wanted to do was sit down and study the person of the Spirit, because I was kind of like, who who is that? I know what the Son does for me. I know what the Father is, but my view of the Father is kind of warped right now. But I really want to understand who this person of the Spirit is. So I say that because perhaps some of you are like that. You're kind of like, all right, I've had weird experiences before at churches that are potentially more charismatic, and there's nothing wrong with that. We don't, we don't have negative things to say about that, but maybe you've had interesting experiences like that, or you've had interesting experiences where people tell you that you only have the spirit if you do X, Y, or Z, or something like that. I don't know. Or maybe you're very comfortable with the topic of the Holy Spirit, and you know a lot about that. Either way, um, it's a really important thing because he is a full member of the Trinity, and we need to uh, be versed in that. So I'm just going to launch into just a few points about that. There's so much that we can say about the Holy Spirit. Um, and really what I'd like to do today is just kind to kind of equip you and point you to some passages in Scripture and then um, kind of give you some different ways of thinking about the Spirit so that you can then go out and research it yourself and kind of fall more into the person of the Spirit and fall more in love with Him and worship Him as fully God. So with that, um, yesterday, Scott and I were discussing about the class, and we um, kind of said, man, the, the third person of the Trinity, as you saw in that timeline, he didn't really come into the discussion until the last two councils. So in a lot of times, people refer to him as like the forgotten person of the Trinity or the one that's kind of like overlooked a little bit, which isn't true necessarily, but I think sometimes in our minds we can do that. Um, but... 
And even though he's that third person, he's obviously very vital, and he's actually our access point into learning about God. So even though, you know, we think numerically or linearly, and he has the number three, that doesn't actually mean anything, because he's actually very vital to us. He actually brings us into God and helps us know God better. He's the way that we actually have knowledge about God. So it's actually super fitting that we're talking about him first, because we can't really learn about God apart from the Spirit. We absolutely cannot. It's also relevant because we're going through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is kind of where the Spirit takes the main stage. Christ has left, and now he's given us the Spirit, and the Spirit has come, and it's empowering us to do all of these things. And so just kind of tying in together as a body what we're already discussing, the Spirit right now is, is really vital. Brian and Steve are talking through that, and that's really important. So I'm going to kind of quickly walk through how the whole, like, just who the Holy Spirit is, how you can identify him in Scripture. I'm going to kind of fly over a bunch of things in Scripture. Um, how he's different from the Father and the Son, how he relates to the Father and the Son, um, and why. Why does it even matter to you? How should you relate to the Spirit as God, and how you can worship him as God? So uh, first, I just want to say, talk about the Spirit and and how we distinguish him from the Father and the Son, or, um, yeah, how he's different. Basically, when I first started prepping for the class, I went immediately to John 14 through 16, which is Christ's farewell discourse. He's kind of like prepping for the crucifixion. He's talking to his disciples, and he's like, okay, I want to tell you about everything, and he's going through that. It's where we get the passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that whole, that whole beautiful, beautiful thing. After that, in chapter 17, we have the high priestly prayer where he's praying for us, that whole passage is, I'm a vine, you are the branches. In that, though, uh, I, I immediately went there was because Christ promises the Spirit to the disciples in that passage. It's where he first kind of says, okay, I'm going to go, but when I go, I'm going to give you a helper. I'm going to give you someone. In lots of different translations, you see advocate or counselor or comforter or a helper. All of those are just basically synonyms and kind of a major title or way of relating to the Spirit, how you can kind of understand the Spirit. He's there to guide, help, comfort, support, sustain in Christ's absence and in Christ's going away. Um, however, though, that's not the only place where we see the Spirit. We see the Spirit way before that. We see the Spirit back in Genesis at the beginning. One way, there's attributes that we ascribe to God. We ascribe to God creation, creator. We ascribe to him eternality. We describe to him, you know, different, different attributes, transcendent, imminent, all those kinds of big theological words that we throw out and say God is that. Well, we can also see that Holy Spirit is God because he's, he's with God in the creation. He's there in the beginning. So he is also creator. That also makes him God. He's there in the beginning. We see him in the Pentateuch with Moses, and Moses is like, I'm stressed out. All these people are coming to me and talking to me and having me judge things. I can't do it on my own. His dad, his father-in-law is like, Laban is like, okay, well, uh, you know, uh, bring in some elders and have them judge the people. And God takes his spirit off of Moses and gives it to some of the elders, and then they prophesy, and then they teach the people. We see it in the book of Judges. Every single judge receives a part of God's spirit and goes out and accomplishes what he needs to accomplish for God's ends. And that time when it was a really dark time, we see it with the kings. Even today, I think in our Old Testament reading passage, and even again, um, as you read through the book of Acts, it, the words of David were inspired by the words of the Holy Spirit. So we see that God's Spirit falls on kings and empowers them to go out and do war and battles and things like that for God. Um, we know that Saul, when Saul was 
forsaken by God, God's spirit left him and he was tormented for that. So in the Old Testament, we kind of see God's spirit falling on people more than like indwelling, which is the the buzzword that we're used to now. We know that the spirit indwells us. Um, With that though, we also know that he inspires prophets and he inspires, which is essentially the the scriptures, the words that we have today. Um, And we know that those are, are very special and sacred words to us. But I guess where the Spirit becomes unique for us and what's significant about the new covenant that we're under is that he, he does indwell us. So here Christ has said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go away again, but I'm going to give you someone, a comforter. And he says in John 14, he says, but he is going to live in you and he is going to abide with you forever. So Christ leaves us. We know he's going to come back for us, but he, he leaves. But he doesn't leave us alone. And he says that I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you one who is going to be with you and be with you forever. He then goes on throughout the rest of those chapters to expound that what that person, this person of the Holy Spirit, what he's going to do for us. Um, but essentially, one thing I want to emphasize is that we worship the Spirit because he is our contact point between the Father and the Son, so for us. So we don't need to go through ritual systems anymore or anything like that. We now have the access, full access to God because of the Spirit. He applies the redemptive work of Christ to the Father's human creation and makes salvation real to us. And I'm saying it that way because I think we need to kind of think about what each person of the Trinity does, though they are totally one and equal in essence. And it is always tricky to kind of talk about this language because sometimes you can slip into different things without even meaning to in the way that you articulate things. But we know that they are all one and um, one essence, but tend to have different roles or different things that they they do. But I think sometimes it's good to break out in our minds, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Christ is, he accomplished the redemptive work. The Father, we think of him as creator, okay? So we are the Father's creation. Christ has redeemed us, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that alive and real to us. You could also say that he is sort of the expression of God's imminence. So I said before, transcendence and imminence are two concepts we have of God. He's, he's far, he's big, he creates, he, he's, he's vast. Um, and then there's that element of he's near, he's close, he's intimate, he's walking beside. The word um, that Christ uses in the Greek is parakletos, which is just essentially someone who comes alongside and, and dwells with you and walks with you and all the things that you do. So there's this picture that the Spirit for us, if we, ha- if we see the Father and he's standing over there, then the Son is our, is our mediator and he's doing the redemptive work between us. We stand in the middle and the spirit kind of comes alongside of us and behind us and pushes us closer into the father and into the son. That's one way that you can kind of look at, look at it. Um, I know that Scott later is going to unpack more, more word pictures for you guys to how you can understand the Trinity, but that's also one way in which we can attempt to reconcile in our minds how they all work and the role of the Spirit um, in our relationship to the Father and the Son. So as I've already discussed, he's unique because he indwells us, which is John 14, 17. Um, he's also unique because he illuminates scripture for us, like I, I've said already as well. Um, another way you can kind of see the identification of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is through uh, poetry and the way that he talks about wisdom. The Hebrew word is ruach, it's breath of life. We know that Timothy says all scripture is God breathes, so he inspires it, he kind of gives it life. As Scott said, the love between the love and the object of love has a life of its own. And that life, we could say, is the spirit as well. 
Um, he teaches us. The Spirit is our teacher. He says, Christ says, he will come and he will teach you and he will bring to remembrance every single thing that I've told you. We all know that the disciples, they kind of really didn't get it. They were kind of slow to pick up on what Christ was saying. Um, but the Holy Spirit came and he illuminated their minds and he taught them and he, re- he recalled to their minds the things that Christ taught, which I think is really important. Um, and he... And in that, he says, I'm going to guide you into all truth. In John 16, 13, he says, the spirit will come and he will guide you into all truth and he will bear witness with your spirit. Um, So that's another important thing that he does. We already know that he empowers from what Brian and Steve have taught us already through the book of Acts, that he, we need to wait and you'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. Christ says in John 14, 12, you will go on and you'll do greater things than these. Um, There's always, there's debate about what that actually means when Christ said that. But one thing that we can say is that it's a pretty great act that 3,000 became believers after Peter preached a sermon about that and after he received power from the Holy Spirit to go out and do what he what he was able to do. Um, so we know that he empowers us to do great acts. And you can see that in the Old Testament too, that when people received God's spirit, they were empowered to go. I mean, Samson, he received the spirit of God and he could kill 30 men with his bare hands. I mean, we know that the spirit is, is something that gives us power. Um, he sanctifies. He uh, is what continues our moral and spiritual, or the transformation of our moral and spiritual character. I like to think of it because he's the closest one to the seat of our emotions. He brings about the effects and changes that need to happen in us um, because he indwells us. He's right there. He can, he can see it better than we can and brings about that sanctification process. Christ says in that same passage, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when he gives us the spirit, the spirit is the one who prepares us for that place so that we're ready when we meet Christ because we are his bride and we need to be spotless and blameless when we meet him that The Spirit is the one who ensures that that process is happening. Also, uh, Christ says in John 16 that he convicts. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit is kind of the one that gives you those little nudges and says, "Um, maybe not that, maybe don't do that, or says, yeah, right on, that was good. Um, Those are just some of the ways that he's different and how he operates differently in our lives and as we understand him. But as he relates to the Father and Son, we know that the Father is actually the one who sends. Again, this is all in John 14 through 16. I'm not saying anything that Christ actually really hasn't said himself. He says, I, the Father is the one who's going to send the Spirit to you on my behalf. And he only will speak what he hears. Christ says that he, he doesn't speak on his own authority. He only speaks what he hears. And he's the one, he's listening to the Father and he's listening to the Son. So that's something that we can also take comfort in. The Spirit also glorifies the Son. He says that in John sixteen fourteen. He's constantly expounding to us the ministry of Christ and what that means and what that should mean to us and how that bears weight in our lives. Um, lastly, the word, the spirit takes what is of Christ and who takes what is of the father and he gives it to us. That, that whole passage is the one where Christ is like, I am in him and he is in me and he is in you. And he does that whole thing and it gets kind of confusing because you're like, who's in who? What? Okay. Um, but literally he's just saying it showing you how it works kind of um the the son is always glorifying the father drawing in from the father and the 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 son and the spirit does the same thing draws on the son and the father and gives that to us again is that contact point to us which is something that is really unique and special um so why 
Why does it matter, though? Why does it matter that spirit is God? Why should it be important to you? How should you relate to him in light of this? What difference should it make in your life? Um, you know, actually, Scott and I kind of are also kind of struggling a little bit yesterday as we were defining how do you worship God as spirit? I think a lot of times when we talk about God, we think father instantly in our minds. And we may not even notice it. I'll say that for myself. A lot of times I'll say God, and I, I know that somewhere I'm thinking father, and I'm not traditionally ascribing Christ as God or Holy Spirit as God. So even in that, there's already kind of a challenge in it, in our thinking and how we approach the concept of God. Um, am I meaning the Father right now? Or am I meaning the Spirit? Am I meaning the Son? How am I approaching that? But I think the way that it's important for us to recognize spirit as God is because it's how we experience God. The spirit is dynamic. He brings scripture to life for us. It brings us to tears. It should bring us meaning. It should bring us joy, gladness. It's how we feel God's presence. Um, and there's so much, like I already said, to know of God, and we can't know of God without the Spirit. So that's one reason why we need to acknowledge him as God and why it's important to worship him. But it is important, literally, on the very base level, that he is fully God, and therefore he does deserve your praise. Um, that being said, worshiping the Spirit as God might take a different character than what we're used to in our minds. It might be challenging yourself in that notion of like, okay, when I'm saying God, am I referring to the Holy Spirit? Am I thinking about the Holy Spirit as I'm saying this right now? Maybe it means um, just a mere acknowledgement of the Holy Spirit in your prayer life a little bit more actively. I was, I've been reading a book about the fear of man and how, you know, initially on the spectrum of fear, you're on one side and you have sheer terror. Like fear is that initial fight or flight reaction that you're just terrified. And then slowly fear can sometimes move from reverence and then from reverence to awe and then from awe to worship. I think that we can have that experience with God a little bit where we can be terrified of God and we're just kind of like, oh, I don't know. Are you condemning me? Do you, you know, did I mess up? Did I lose it? But we need to be constantly pushing ourselves into further reverence, into further awe and into further worship of God. So And I think that this spirit is the one who enables us to do that. So maybe even thinking more practically about that. Practicing the fruits of the spirit. I mean, I can't, we don't even have time to unpack the fruits of the spirit or the gifts of the spirit right now. But maybe educating yourself on that more or practicing, being purposeful about practicing the fruits of the spirit. Uh, A lot of times I think that we wait for motivation to do something when we really need to actually take action first and then motivation follows. Uh, worship is um, a very involved word, but one thing that worship always involves is obedience, and obedience takes discipline. And so I think that the action, uh, so being disciplined in our actions of pursuing the fruit is even one way that we can bring worship to God as spirit. There's a reason why he's given us that. Um, I've already said including him more actively in your prayer life. Again, this is another phrase that I don't really have a ton of time to unpack, but walking by the Spirit, uh, Ephesians 5, Romans 8, Galatians 6 are all passages that are really great for you to maybe study and think about. And one way I think that you can continue to worship God as Spirit 
Um, he's a convictor. I think recognizing even when the spirit is convicting you of sin or of righteousness or of judgment or those things and yielding to that, to that work in your life. I think submission is another way that we, we worship God. And then lastly, just ask, I think asking God, how can I be more sensitive to you as the person of the spirit? How can I be more inclusive of the idea of who you are as spirit in my life? Um, I think the last thing that I just, I want to, to leave with you is just the, we have the spirit completely when we are reborn in Christ, we completely 100% receive the spirit. But I guess the question for us is, do we have, does the spirit have all of us? We're each sealed with the spirit, which means we're already set apart, which means we're already marked as gods and we receive, we receive all of his promises, but are we really giving him full control and are we really um, acknowledging him for what he can do in our lives and experiencing God on a greater level through that pursuing knowledge of the holy etc so that's pretty much what I have in regards to the spirit there's a lot more that I could get into but I just wanted to kind of give you a, a base level understanding thanks Hannah so a lot of info again this is a heavy day right uh, I want to pause now and open it up for questions before I conclude us. What's going on in your mind? Set? Does anyone have any lingering thoughts about what we're doing here, what the Trinity is, what the Spirit is, how to practice the Spirit? Yeah, Ben. To humans. Yeah. That's a good question. <laughs> um, I, can try, I can try to tackle that. I, yeah. Um, can you say what? Yeah, his question was an awesome one, and that is, prior to the fall, where was the spirit in relation to the human state and the human condition? How did he essentially relate to man? Is, is, am I phrasing it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that's kind of a tough question. I mean, I would say that, I mean, we know from the word that, that God walked with man and experienced, I, and experienced life with man. And so I, I would say that God probably unified, and that's where we would understand him as unified, where all three persons are in one essence and being are encountering man and experiencing man um, and that they're experiencing him. It's, it's so hard, I think, in our limited minds to understand um, if God is standing here as a person with me, I'm experiencing all different aspects of his divinity. But I'm sure that there was a portion, the, the spirit was ministering to man. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I'm just... Well, I, I think one thing we should be careful of is making it sound like uh, before sin, we didn't need the Spirit, right? So the Spirit is not a band-aid for sin. It's not, it's not just what we need in this current dispensation to connect with God because sin has perverted the way that we connect with God, you know, originally. Uh, the Spirit is much more a, a permanent, absolute aspect of God that was definitely present in the garden. The scripture doesn't seem to speak clearly on how and you know, the where's and why's and how's of 
what that was like. So I, I'm not, I don't know. I don't have a good answer, but it's, it's a, it's awesome to think about. Yeah. Other questions? Okay. Let me, let me conclude now by just uh, emphasizing what we're doing here with these classes. We really just want to give you guys, especially um, community group leaders, so that you can, go, you can feel empowered to go out into your community groups and, uh, and practice worshiping the Trinity in your, own, in your own lives. We want to give you resources for deepening your relationship with God. Okay, So the reason we're talking about the different aspects of the Trinity— Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is to differentiate our thinking about God and complexify our thinking about God and thereby to deepen our worship of God. So all this knowledge, all this truth is in service to the spirit of worship, right? It's to make our worship more pure and authentic and real with God, okay? So just a couple of resources that you can begin to delve into if you, if you have interest in this. Start with the creeds, okay? The Nicene Creed that we quoted part of today, but also a shorter version of that, the Apostles' Creed. Again, structured Trinitarianly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, really does a good job of unpacking what these different persons do vis-a-vis man in salvation history, okay? Secondly, this is a great uh, book that's phrased and, and written in a way that's pretty accessible. It's called "The Deeper Things of the, or the Deep Things of God" by Fred Sanders, who is a professor at Biola. Um, I have a copy up here. You can look at it. Uh, Brian lent this to me as I was preparing for this class, and it's been a helpful resource for me. Okay, so with that, I want to close in prayer and, and send you off on your way. All right. So let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for revealing the, the inner, your inner life to us and drawing us up into that. Pray that as we leave today and as we, as we continue to embody your life in our community, that you would reveal more of yourself to us and draw us deeper into that Trinitarian life that is full of self-giving and love and overflow of that love. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray today. Amen.